Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 219. Today's big Bible question, why did God the Father abandon His Son, Jesus, on the cross? So, hello, dear friends. Happy Lord's Day to you. Please consider joining us live on Facebook at VBC Salinas. That's Victor Bravo Charlie Salinas, V-B-C-S-A-L-I-N-A-S, for a message in time of worship today from our home church at 11 a.m. Pacific. Our focus is on the Holy Spirit and how we might be missing the fullness and the deeper presence of God's Spirit in our lives and ministries. And I'd love to have you join us uh, for that. And I appreciate all of you who do drop in and join us for that live stream. Our Bible readings today include Judges chapter 16, Jeremiah 29, Mark chapter 15, and Acts 20. Our focus for the day is on the crucifixion of Jesus, and we're asking the question of why did God turn his back on his son on Good Friday so long ago? We humans tend to turn our backs to people whom we deem unworthy of our continued attention or people who are hurting us, accosting us, or somehow just trying to interact with us in a negative way. On the other hand, Jesus was the most pure, loving, kind, and perfect human being that ever lived. And yet, unfairly, he was despised and rejected by men, beaten, spat upon, stripped, naked, flogged, nailed to the cross, and taunted while he was on the cross. That humans did this to the greatest and most precious human that ever lived is stunning enough that God the Father, who sees all and knows all, would turn his back on his beautiful son, Jesus, the Son of God, who is God himself, is several magnitudes more stunning, and yet this is exactly what happened. Now, I will never forget the first Aramaic expression I ever learned. This was way before seminary. I was just a freshman or sophomore in college and attending Hildale Baptist Church in Centerpoint, Alabama. Our pastor, Dr. Edwin Jenkins, was preaching about the last words of Jesus on the cross, and his sermon was on Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that message cut me to the heart for whatever reason. I didn't pay attention to every sermon back then, but this one sliced into me. Just thinking about Jesus paying the price for my sin on the cross and suffering the terror of having his father turn away from him in the midst of the greatest trial any being has ever gone through. Why did God do this to his son, and why is it important? Well, let's read the passage in Mark and then discuss this most important of questions. Mark chapter 15, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer, and so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom, and Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. 
But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release, they would release Barabbas to them. Instead, Pilate asked them, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each person would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, loma sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph's, and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him back and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he brought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were watching where he was laid. So to help us understand the beauty and magnitude of the forsaking of Jesus, I'd like to turn first to Spurgeon for us to see the sadness of our Savior and then to Tim Keller to understand the wonder and importance of that forsaking. So, Charles Spurgeon says this, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was the startling cry of Golgotha, 
Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. The Jews mocked, but the angels adored when Jesus cried this exceeding bitter cry. Nailed to the tree, we beheld our great Redeemer in extremities, and what see we? Let us gaze with holy wonder and mark the flashes of light amid the awful darkness of that midday midnight. First, our Lord's faith deserves our reverent imitation. He keeps his hold upon his God and cries twice, My God, my God. The spirit of adoption was strong within the suffering Son of Man, and he felt no doubt about his interest in his God. Oh, that we could imitate this holding to an afflicting God. Nor does the sufferer distrust the power of God to sustain him, for the title used, El, signifies strength and is the name of the mighty God. He knows the Lord to be the all-sufficient support and succor of his spirit, and therefore appeals to him in the agony of grief, but not in the misery of doubt. He would like to know why he is left. He raises that question and repeats it, but neither the power nor the faithfulness of God does he mistrust. What a question is this before us. Why hast thou forsaken me? We must lay the emphasis on every word of this saddest of all utterances. Why? There was no cause in him. Why then was he deserted? Hast, it is done, and the Savior is feeling its dreaded effect. It is surely true, but how mysterious. It was no threatening of forsaking which made the great surety cry aloud. He endured that forsaking in very deed. Thou, I can understand why traitorous Judas and timid Peter should be gone, but thou, my God, my faithful friend, how can thou leave me? This is worst of all, worse than all put together. Hell itself has for its fiercest flame the separation of the soul from God. Forsaken, if thou hadst chastened or punished me, I might bear it, for thy face would shine. But to forsake me utterly, ah, why is this? Me, thy innocent, obedient, suffering son, why are you leaving me to perish? A sight of self seen by penitence and of Jesus on the cross seen by faith will best expound this question. Jesus is forsaken because our sins had separated between us and our God. Why are thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? The man of sorrows had prayed until his speech failed him, and he could only utter moanings and groanings as men do in severe sicknesses, like the roarings of a wounded animal. To what extremity of grief was our master driven? What a strong crying and tears were those which made him too hoarse for speech. What must have been his anguish to find his own beloved and trusted father standing afar off and neither granting help nor apparently hearing prayer? Yet there was a reason for all of this, which those who rest in Jesus as their substitute well know. And now we turn to Tim Keller to help us understand how you and I benefit from the horror of Jesus being forsaken. Pastor Keller says, Jesus on the cross is getting judgment day. He's getting our judgment day. It's coming down on him. As horrible as it is to have a spear in your side, as horrible as it is to die of suffocation, as horrible as it is to have been tortured and beaten, the crown of thorns nails through your hands and feet. He doesn't say a thing about that because compared to this, that's a flea bite. Jesus is experiencing Judgment Day, the cosmic horror of uncreation coming down on him, the Judgment Day we deserve. No one has ever suffered like this man has suffered. No one. That's the first thing you see from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The second thing is, as you see him saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We realize no one has ever obeyed God like this. 
No one has ever suffered like this. But secondly, no one's ever obeyed like this. For every other person who has ever lived, God has said, if you obey me, you will live. If you give yourself to me, I will give myself to you. We don't often feel that way because our life doesn't go this or that way. But that's the promise. And that's every other person in the history of the world before and after. If you give yourself to God, God will give himself to you. Except this one. Jesus Christ is trusting God. Notice he doesn't say cruel father. No, he says, my God, my God, while he's being damned. He's trusting God while he's being damned. That has never happened before. It will never happen again. It's unbelievable. You know, in the book Moby Dick, when Captain Ahab is actually going down to his watery grave, at one point he yells out to Moby Dick, from hell's heart, I stab at thee. Well, it's very dramatic, but just rhetoric. He wasn't in hell's heart. He was going to die, but he wasn't in hell's heart. But here's someone who really was. Here's someone who really was in hell's heart. But what does he say? He says, from hell's heart, I still love you. No one has ever obeyed God like this. No one has ever been faithful and trusted God like this. Okay, now why? Why is he enduring infinite suffering and why is he accomplishing infinite obedience? What's the answer to the question, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer is for you. There is an answer. It's not an unanswerable question. The answer is for you, for me, for us. Do you know how many times I've said that Jesus Christ has come to do this in our place? That's why he's a savior. He has come to live the life we should have lived and he died the death we should have died. He's doing both in this cry. He's dying the death we should have died, but we can't. He's paying the penalty of our sins, but he's living the life we should have lived. This is perfect obedience in our place. And it is this wonderful act of Jesus on the cross, my dear friends, that saves us. He was forsaken by his Father so that we don't have to be forsaken by his Father because he paid the price of our sins. He suffered the horror of having his father turn the back, his back to him while he was on the cross so that you and I never have to face that. And how do we take hold of this wonderful, amazing gift? It is simply by faith, by grace of Jesus dying for us when we didn't deserve it. We look to him on the cross in faith, believing that what he did, the death he died, the forsaking he suffered, he suffered for us. And when we look to him in faith, believing and follow him wholeheartedly, we will be washed by his sacrifice, saved by his substitutionary atonement, saved by his taking on the punishment for our sins. That is the good news. And good news is not strong enough. It's great news. Believe in what Jesus has done for you and rejoice in it today. Even if your spirit is low, even if going through the pandemic or any other trial you're going through right now, you're anxious, depressed, confused, weary, sad, whatever it might be, rejoice in this lovely, amazing thing that because Jesus was forsaken, we don't have to be. Amen. We continue with Judges chapter 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute and went to bed with her. When the Gazites heard that Samson was there, they surrounded the place and waited in ambush for him all that night at the city gate. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let's wait till dawn, then we kill him. But Samson stayed in bed only until midnight. Then he got up, took hold of the doors of the city gate, along with the two gate posts, and pulled them out, bar and all. 
He put them on his shoulders and took them to the top of the mountain overlooking Hebron. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the Sorek Valley. The Philistine leaders went to her and said, Persuade him to tell you where his great strength comes from so we can overpower him, tie him up, and make him helpless. Each of us will give you mm, 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me, where does your great strength come from? How could someone tie you up and make you helpless? Samson told her, If they tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I will become weak and be like any other man. So the Philistine leaders brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him up with them. While the men in ambush were waiting in her room, she yelled out to him, Samson, the Philistines are here. But he snapped the bowstrings as a strand of yarn snaps when it touches fire. The secret of his strength remained unknown. Then Delilah said to Samson, You have mocked me and told me lies. Won't you please tell me how you can be tied up? He told her, If they tie me up with new ropes that have never been used, I will become weak and be like any other man. Delilah took new ropes, tied her him up with him and shouted, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are here. But while the men in ambush were waiting in her room, he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, You have mocked me all along and told me lies. Tell me how you can be tied up. He told her, If you weave the seven braids on my head into the fabric on a loom. So she fastened the braids with a pin and called to him, Samson, the Philistines are here. He awoke from his sleep and pulled out the pin with the loom in the web. How can you say I love you, she told him, when your heart is not with me? This is the third time you've mocked me and not told me what makes your strength so great. Because she nagged him day after day and pleaded with him until she wore him out, he told her the whole truth and said to her, My hair has never been cut because I am a Nazarite to God from birth. If I am shaved, my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah realized that he had told her the whole truth, she sent this message to the Philistine leaders, Come one more time, for he has told me the whole truth. The Philistine leaders came to her and brought the silver with them. Then she let him fall asleep on her lap and called a man to shave off the seven braids on his head. In this way she made him helpless, and his strength left him. Then she cried, Samson! The Philistines are here. When he awoke from his sleep, he said, I will escape as I did before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. The Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he was forced to grind grain in the prison. But his hair began to bro grow back after it had been shaved. Now the Philistine leaders gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to their god Dagon. They rejoiced and said, our God has handed over our enemy Samson to us. When the people saw him, they praised their God and said, Our God has handed over to us our enemy who destroyed our land and who multiplied our dead. When they were in good spirits, they said, Bring Samson here to entertain us. So they brought Samson from prison and he entertained them. They had him stand between the pillars. Samson said to the young man who was leading him by the hand, Lead me where I can feel the pillar supporting the temple so I can lean against them. The temple was full of men and women. All the leaders of the Philistines were there, and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof watching Samson entertain them. He called out to the Lord, Lord God, please remember me. Strengthen me, God, just once more. 
With one act of vengeance, let me pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson took hold of the middle pillars surrounding the temple and leaned against them, one on his right hand and the other on his left. Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the leaders and all the people in it. And those he killed in his death were more than those he had killed in his life. When his brothers and his father's family came down, carried him back, and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of his father Manoah. So he judged Israel twenty years. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining exiled elders, the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the court officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elisah, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The letter stated, This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for it, when it thrives, you will thrive. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says, Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you, and don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says, When seventy years from Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, this is the Lord's declaration, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will will restore you to the place from which I deported you. You have said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, but this is what the Lord says concerning the king sitting on David's throne and concerning all the people living in this city. That is, concerning your brothers who did not go with you into exile. This is what the Lord of armies says. I am about to send sword, famine, and plague against them, and I will make them like rotten figs that are inedible because they are so bad. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and plague. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse and a desolation, an object of scorn and a disgrace among all the nations where I have banished them. I will do this because they have not listened to my words. This is the Lord's declaration. The words that I sent them to them with my prophet, my servants, the prophets, time and time again, and you too have not listened. This is the Lord's declaration. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles. I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says about Ahab, son of Kaliah, and concerning Zedekiah, son of Masalah, the ones prophesying a lie to you in my name. I am about to hand them over to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and he will kill them before your very eyes. Based on what happens to them, all the exiles of Judah who are in Babylon will create a curse that says, May the Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in their fire. 
because they have committed an outrage in Israel by committing adultery with their neighbors' wives and have spoken in my name a lie, which I did not command them. I am he who knows, and I am a witness. This is the Lord's declaration. To Shemaiah the Nehelamite, you are to say, This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. You are in your own name have sent out leaders to all the people of Jerusalem, to the priest Zephaniah, son of Masaiah, and to all the priests, saying, The Lord has appointed you priest in place of the priest Jehoiada to the chief officer in the temple of the Lord, responsible for every madman who acts like a prophet. You must confine him in the stocks in an iron collar. So now, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who has been acting like a prophet among you? For he has sent word to us in Babylon, claiming the exile will be long. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat their produce. The priest Zephaniah read this letter in the hearing of the prophet Jeremiah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Send a message to all the exiles, saying, This is what the Lord says concerning Shemaiah the Nehelamite. Because Shemaiah prophesied to you, though I did not send him, and made you trust a lie, this is what the Lord says. I am about to punish Shemaiah the Nehelamite and his descendants. There will not even be one of his descendants living among these people, nor will any ever see the good that I will bring to my people. This is the Lord's declaration, for he has preached rebellion against the Lord. Acts chapter 20 verse 1. After the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, encouraged them, and after saying farewell, departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had passed through those areas and offered them any words of encouragement, he came to Greece and stayed three months. The Jews plotted against him when he was about to set sail for Syria, and so he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. In five days we reached them at Troas, where we spent seven days. On the first day of the week we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were assembled, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting on a window sill and sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. When he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, embraced him, and said, Don't be alarmed, because he's alive. After going upstairs, breaking the bread and eating, Paul talked a long time until dawn. Then he left. They brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted. He went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Azos, where we were going to take Paul on board, because those were his instructions, since he himself was going by land. When he met us at Azos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. Sailing from there, the next day we arrived off of Chios. The following day we crossed over to Samos, and the day after the day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. When they came to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God 
and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I have spent when about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock at which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up, even from your own number, and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. And now I commit you to God in the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Well, friends, may this day be a wonderful day of worship, of glorifying the name of Jesus, and by drawing close to him, and walking in his word, and in his teaching, and embracing his sweet Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Godspeed.